Hello, lovely. So before we get started, I know I owe you an episode on the Fifth Dates Top and Skirt. I owe you the Fifth Dates Top and Skirt for it to come in stock. Um, and the truth is that the story is not finished yet. Production is still delayed. I am. It, it is coming this week. God willing, and by the grace of everything that is good, um, that will be finalized this week. And uh, like I promised, as soon as I have that and it's in stock and all the pre-orders are shipped out, I'm going to sit down and record that episode in full and get it out to you whenever whenever that is ready. So that's that's where that's that's where that's going. Um, Along similar lines, uh, the newest design that I have been working on that is this beautiful dress with a straight skirt and a dolman sleeve, which is also known as a bat wing sleeve. So it has a ton of room on top. It's super comfortable draping across the front. The pre-order for that dress, uh, which is called the pause dress, is opening tomorrow. So Tuesday, um, tomorrow from when this is published. So Tuesday, August 9th is when that pre-order is going to be opening. And then um, it'll be open starting Tuesday afternoon and go through Friday morning. So you'll have basically all day Wednesday, all day Thursday to pre-order. Um, and then I'll be closing it out Friday morning and then sending in the, the numbers to the factory then. So I highly recommend that you pre-order um, because that guarantees that you get the size and the color that you'd like without worrying about launch day jitters, especially now as we're coming closer to Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, um, Sukkot, really. Um, this is when stuff starts going really, really fast. So pre-ordering is the way to give yourself a wonderful calm, pre-Yantif season. You can pre-order the pause dress and shop for all of your Yantif needs, both on the dressier side and less so by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Also, this week's episode is with Dr. Amy Barron of I Was Supposed to Have a Baby. It's a fantastic organization. It's a crazy story that led up to the founding of it. Um, and something that actually struck me, you're, you're about to hear that story of, of how that came came together. And something that actually really struck me while I was editing this episode is that one of the things that Dr. Barron mentions that she noticed that was like a spur to start I was supposed to have a baby was that in the wider world, outside of the Jewish space, there were people on social media who were being super open about their infertility journeys and to the point where they were you know sharing like today's day one and I'm doing these shots and this is and this is what's going on um and and Dr. Barra notes that it was that you know we were worlds away from seeing that in the from space um but that there was starting to become a little bit more acceptance of that well now like as as this is being recorded um Chef Chaya is doing exactly that. Chef Chaya is taking, you know, her followers through exactly what an IVF cycle looks like from giant needle to giant needle. It is fascinating as a viewer to watch. I can tell you that. And it really struck me as I was editing this episode that this was what Amy foresaw. You know, this was what Dr. Barron foresaw. This was what she realized that a level of acceptance could really affect the way that the Jewish community, the way that the Orthodox community sees fertility. And it, you know, it's, you can see the, the ending before the beginning, I guess. Um, 
but it really is very it really is very special to see it's really very special to see how her vision came to life in such an extreme way i was supposed to have a baby is currently running their annual campaign to be able to continue doing the work that they do it is an extremely worthy cause i hope that you will fall in love with dr amy baron just as much as i have um you know, over the course of getting to know her and definitely throughout this interview and the editing process and all of that. And if you would like to be a part of the work that she does, um, check out the campaign. See if there is a way that you can contribute. When they say that every dollar counts, they really, really mean it. Even one dollar makes a huge, huge difference. So you can see the campaign by going to I was supposed to have a baby.org slash donate. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. And on today's show, I talk with a pediatrician and founder of I Was Supposed to Have a Baby about her infertility journey. She shares the work she did to accept the fact that her family would work the way she imagined after suffering multiple miscarriages and how we can better support those around us in the infertility community. Dr. Amy Barron and I have a few mutual friends, so I don't remember exactly how we first met but I do remember immediately clicking with her. The organization she founded, I Was Supposed to Have a Baby, fills a really unique need in the Jewish community in the most sensitive of ways. We sat down to discuss how all that came to be. I was, I was the kid who was like the typical goody two-shoes type of kid. Like, I always tried to do the right thing. I was a good student. I tried to be a good friend. Um, but what I would say is that I, in, in the area in which I lived, I was not in the cool crowd, so to speak, um, because I did not grow up religious. And the school that I went to was a religious school. And so I was basically the only girl who was not religious in, in the class, in, in my grade, frankly, we had a very small school. Um, and so I always felt a little bit like I was on the outside looking in. Um, but I remember being a happy child and, you know, I loved my friends, but it was, I, I, I think that I always say that that was also one of the reasons why I wanted to become religious because I saw this life, this, you know, when I would go over to my friends' houses on Shabbos and, you know, see the way their families lived, like there was something really beautiful about that, that I never had. And so I, I always say that, yes, like I was the outsider and I, it was me trying to fit in, but I think that that really helped form that, that it ignited that spark that, that gave me the, you know, the, the fortitude is not the right word, but really gave me the idea that from lifestyle was something that I wanted and that I could attain. And so, yeah, that's, that's me as a kid. Where did you grow up? Cause it's super unusual for a not religious kid to be in a religious school. 
Yeah. So, so I grew up in Lakewood actually, and the Lakewood that doesn't exist anymore because, you know, Lakewood when I was growing up, so to take you back even a little bit further. So my maternal grandparents, my mother's parents were Holocaust survivors. Um, they, um, were found each other in DP camps. They were distant cousins. They got married, had my mother and came over in 49. And on one side, they were farmers before the war and they ended up in Brooklyn for a couple of years. And then with a bunch of their friends, they decided to open up an egg farm. And so if you were egg farming, you were either doing that in Lakewood or in Vineland. And so they settled with a number of their friends in Lakewood. And so my mother grew up there and then my mother got married and then I was born there also. I'm the oldest of three. Um, they, you know, the story goes that one, one side of my family was religious before the war, the other side was not. But they, you know, for everything that they've been through, they. They basically just decided my, this is my understanding, my grandparents, unfortunately, they're not alive anymore, but that, you know, that they wanted to be in a Jewish community, but weren't necessarily wanting to be religious. Um, and then I, I was told that the rabbi of the community and the rabbi who was also, I think, I don't know whether he was the principal or I, I don't know what role he had in the modern Orthodox day school at the time, which was connected to the shul. Um, my mother was the oldest of two. So he, he came to my grandparents and said, you must send your daughter to my school. And they were like, no, we're planning on sending her to public school. And they're like, no, he said, no, you, I'm begging you to send her to my school you know, you've been through so much, you don't want her to lose her Yiddish kite, I will pay for it. I'm begging you to send her to your school, to our school. Um, and so my mother and her brother went to this modern Orthodox day school. And then so did I. Um, but for me, you know, at the time, Lakewood was this place where yes, obviously, the, the yeshiva community was a very prominent part of the community. But it wasn't overwhelming the community. I mean, we lived a mile and a half away from the yeshiva and we would walk to shul sometimes on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and sometimes we would drive to shul. Um, and, but over the years, like we just saw the neighborhood just become more and more and more um, overwhelmed. And I, not really overwhelmed, but just really, you know, the yeshiva community started taking over. There were people who started moving in from Brooklyn, from Staten Island, from other places. Um, and then when we left in the early 1990s, um, my grandparents, unfortunately, had been nifter a few years before then. Um, when we left, our house, which was a mile and a half away from the yeshiva, was bought by from people. And so, and, and, you know, Lakewood today, I mean, I go back, you know, at least once a year to go, um, to go to the cemetery where my grandparents are buried. And it's just literally like every time I go back every year, I'm just like, I, I literally I don't recognize this street. I don't recognize this. Where did that building come from? Like, it, it's just, it is wild. Um, the explosion, the, the Lakewood of today is literally nothing like the Lakewood I grew up in. Wow, that is actually fascinating. And now I kind of want to like research the history of Lakewood, but that is not why we are here today. Um, <laughs> I know you as Dr. Amy Barron, who is the uh, founder and director of I Was Supposed to Have a Baby. And I, I'm curious about two things. First of all, I'd love to know what made you decide to be, to be a pediatrician and how you ended up in that field. And then we have to talk about I Was Supposed to Have a Baby and what space that fills in the Jewish community. Because I think that it's such an important organization that is doing some really cool stuff. But I want to focus on you for a second. What made you 
you know, what made you decide to be a pediatrician? Were you already religious by the time you were in medical school? I was. So I, you know, because of my upbringing, because of, you know, living in the Lakewood milieu, I, I really, and, and my, with my friends, like I, I saw that life and I wanted it. And so from a very young age, I made the decision that when I was older, when I was independent, when I could do things on my own, <laughs> independent being exactly the same thing, but I'm now saying it twice, I, I knew that I wanted to start becoming religious, whatever that meant. Like, I just like, like Shabbos was so beautiful. I, I just, I wanted that. And, you know, we moved out of Lakewood. We moved to this town called Manalathan, which is about 20 minutes north of Lakewood, which has a very large Jewish community, but a very small from community. It also um, has fantastic kosher Chinese food. By the yes, way. it does. Yes, it does. Which I is just, has I, been there since yes, since I was it little. Is called, and what is it called? Like Chinese manalapan or something? Ko kosher I Chinese manalapan? Right. I was going to say it used to be called Kosher Chinese Express. I don't know what it's actually called right now, but it is like I think we've had many restaurants in Manalapan over the years. I think it's the only one that has survived like literally it is for fantastically like 20, delicious. By and, the way, and not expensive, and not, and expensive. not expensive, and yeah. it is very good. So, by the way, go yeah. to Manalapan for their very good Chinese food. But I digress. Exactly. Continue, Amy. Exactly. Um, and so, when so I so to backtrack slightly, when we were living in Lakewood, you know, the Lakewood community was either you were from or you were not religious. You, they were sorry. Let me go back. In Lakewood, if you were living in Lakewood, you were either Jewish and from, or you were a minority. There was a very, very, very small Jewish, not religious community. So it wasn't an option, even though my family was not religious, it wasn't an option for us to be sent to public school. I was sent to that same modern Orthodox day school that my mother was sent to. And so I went to that day school through eighth grade. So I got a full day school yeshiva education, whatever that means. I mean, look, it was a very tiny school. And so it certainly was not to the standards of many schools, you know, that exist today, but I did get a full, you know, eight years plus through from preschool through eighth grade, you know, yeshiva day school education. Um, and then I actually was sent, we were still living in Lakewood at the time. And then I was sent to Hillel, which is a co-ed modern Orthodox day school in Deal, New Jersey. But then we decided to move out of Lakewood. My parents had been not happy in Lakewood for a while because they saw the town turning. They weren't comfortable there anymore. And they decided to move to Manalpin. And I was put into public school, which was a total culture shock, complete and utter culture shock. Um, but the thread that sort of kept me like involved in, in Yiddishkeit was that I was always involved in NCSY from fifth grade through 12th grade. And so I was still able to be with my friends from Yeshiva and my friends from Lakewood. And that was really the thread. And I remember there was some point that during 12th grade, like towards the end of 12th grade, I, I said, yeah, like, I think like, I, I, I keep talking about this idea of like, when I get to college, when I'm independent, when I can do the things that I want to do on my own, that's when I'm going to start to keep Shabbos. And that's when I'm going to start to do all those other things that I have been like sort of putting on hold. And it just dawned on me one day, I was like, you know what, who's forcing me to go out on a Friday night? No one. Who's forcing me to turn on lights and, you know, watch TV with my parents on a Friday night? no one. So why can't I start keeping Shabbos now? Like, why do I have to wait? And so that's basically what I did. I mean, and my parents thought I was crazy. All of my friends thought I was crazy. 
the, the, the senior prom was on a Friday night and they were like, this is like, you know, the culmination of our entire high school career. And like, you know, Shabbos comes around every week. And why don't you just like, just come to prom? And like, I was like, no, I keep Shabbos now. And they literally did not understand why I was giving up on this seminal experience just to keep Shabbos when I could keep it the other 51 weeks of the year. But I digress. So I went to college really, and, and even as I was growing up, like I loved the sciences and I, I just, I, you know, was a volunteer in the hospitals and I just really loved, like I loved medicine and I always really had my mind on medicine. And because I love kids, I was a camp counselor and, you know, teachers, blah, 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 all these things, like, just felt like, you know, pediatrics was really the place that I wanted to head in terms of my career. Kids, you know, the unique thing about kids is that generally speaking, no matter how sick they are, and obviously there are a few caveats, like there is childhood cancer, and but most even childhood cancers fall into this, this category as well. Um, most kids, they get better. And that to me was just, like it was just a piece of medicine and all of the depressing pieces that there are and going through all of the disciplines in medical school. But I really knew this beforehand. Like I wanted, I love the challenge of, you know, the diagnosing and the helping people and supporting people and watching kids grow up. But I most loved this, this idea that pediatrics was the happy place in medicine. And I wanted to be there. And I'll just tell you a very quick story. The, like, the other piece about pediatrics or the baby piece, right? And that mm -hmm. obviously dovetails with the work that I do now. But when I was going through my OBGYN rotation in medical school, I kept thinking like, oh, this is so fascinating. You see from the time, like they're, you know, little cells and then they get bigger and bigger. And then you watch the development and you do all the ultrasounds and the tests and it's so cool and blah, blah, blah. And then I had this, you know, a couple of weeks in my OBGYN rotation where I was actually in the delivery rooms and on the floors and like delivering babies. And I remember the first time I was in that room and helping to deliver a baby. And so like, you know, a mother is giving birth vaginally and I'm guiding the baby out and the baby lands in my arms, you know, obviously after all this stuff. And then I bring the baby to the warmer and I'm there with the baby and I'm, you know, checking to make sure the baby is okay. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden my attending, my, the head doctor at the time who was supervising me says to me, she's like, Amy, um, we need to be over here. Our, our patient is the mother. I'm like, oh, right. I'm like, I'm more interested in being over here with the baby, not with the mother, but you need me over there. Okay, fine. And like, that was really the seminal moment where I was like, okay, it's pediatrics. It's not OBGYN. This is where I'm headed. And so that's how, that's why pediatrics is my first love. Wow. Yeah, I can totally see that being like a completely transformational moment. Um, so, so what happens with your life from there where you know where were you holding at what point did you like start having kids get married build a family talk me through all of that yeah so um look as a balas chuva and as someone who you know always knew that i wanted to be a doctor i i i was not interested in dating really until towards the end of medical school one because i wanted to focus on my studies and make sure that i was you know doing everything that i needed to do and i was worried that I was going to be distracted with family life and dating and so on. But two, also, like, let's just call it what it is. I went to medical school in Syracuse, New York. 
not exactly the bastion of like, you know, from from life nor like you know pools what do you mean there aren't around. there aren't just a plethora of lovely jewish boys waiting to date you in syracuse right so there was one in my class there was like there were two of right two, there were two of us who were from in my class i think there were two or three in the year above me but i think all of them were married or two of them were i, I the bottom line is no there was nobody <laughs> um, that's the answer there was nobody and that actually was good because the truth is it was Syracuse. It wasn't Miami. It was very cold. It was snowing all the time. There weren't a lot of things to do except for studying. And that was totally fine by me. Yes. Were a lot of my friends getting married, you know, dating and getting married? Yes. But I sort of had my eye on the prize and knew that this is what I wanted. And I, I kind of felt like I had to do like head down and just buckle up and get it, get done. And I knew that my fourth year of medical school would be a time where I could do outside rotations at different hospitals. And I specifically chose, so I did one in Philly and one um, in Great Neck where, where I ended up, um, where I ended up actually doing my residency. And so while I was there, I did a lot of, I, I dated a lot. And then I used to come down very, very frequently during my fourth year and also meet people and date. And so that's when I started dating. I ended up meeting my husband. It's like a long story, which I'm not boring you about. Um, I ended up meeting my husband through a very close friend of his. Um, I was set up on a date with him through my best friend from college. And then he, um, this best friend called my husband, my husband's name is Jonathan. He called Jonathan after that date and said, I just met your wife. <laughs> um, and so, I, I mean, it was a, it's much longer story, but we, um, we ended up starting to date in the middle of my first year of residency, not in the middle, towards the beginning of my first year of residency. And we got married, uh, I don't know, whatever, when we got married from the time that we started dating to the time that we got married, it was a year later. Don't ask. My husband says it's because he never saw me because I was working 90 hours a week and he couldn't make up his mind and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that, we that's got the men's side of the story, yeah, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, we could also talk about the time where like we were dating for like a couple of months and I said to him, I'm like, and where is this relationship going anyway? And he was like, whoa, like, whoa, whoa what, what's going on? <laughs> um, but I digress. Um, we, so we got married and Baruch Hashem, we got pregnant very, very quickly. Um, and I had my daughter really right around the first anniversary, our, our first anniversary. Um, we then, I, I was, I, I needed to finish up residency and take my boards. And we had discussed with our rabbi that I could go on birth control for, for a short period of time to just sort of get through that period. I had a difficult pregnancy towards the end. I was on bed rest and I was worried about finishing and completing and I just wanted to be done. And he said, because I had already had a child that it was okay if I, uh, he gave us a dispensation the Hetzer, that we could go on birth control. I want to jump um, in here for a second and just explain for yeah. someone who might not be familiar. Oh, yes. Go um, ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Please. So um, there are some religious Jews, some from Jews who, um, for what we'll call, I guess, religious reasons who are opposed to birth control. Um, they see it as a mitzvah, as a like a positive commandment, as something that you should do to have kids. Um, and, uh, and there are varying opinions on this, on whether being on birth control is permissible or not. Um, most people will say that once you've had 
first of all, most people will say that if there's any reason to wait, like if there's a mental health issue or a career issue or something like that, um, then you should put yourself in the best position to, you know, be able to raise the child properly and that you should wait and that you should be on some form of birth control. Um, and the situation that you're describing is pretty typical, where if someone will have a baby pretty soon after they get married, and then, you know, not everybody wants to have two babies in two years. So, um, you know, to be able to better space out children so that you can manage them better, that's also a pretty common reason um, why someone will, you know, be on birth control for a prescribed amount of time. There are plenty of from Jews who will discuss this with a rabbi and get a specific dispensation every time. Uh, there are plenty who won't and who will just make the decisions that, you know, for themselves that make the most sense for them at the time in their lives um, that they're at. So that's what you're you're referring to is that, um, you know, you had gotten pregnant pretty soon after you got married and then decided to wait between kids one and two. Correct. Thank you for that. I, we, right. So that's exactly it. And so we, we were on birth control for, I don't know, I think it was like four or five months. Um, and then, and then, you know, we decided, we decided to start trying again. And that, that, that ended up being a period of about three ish years from the time, um, from we, there was a period of, let's call it three and a half years between my daughter and my son. Um, and a couple of those months were because I was on birth control, but the rest of it was because I had unexplained secondary infertility. We, we could not, you know, we had tried for a year at that point. I was young. My husband was young. Um, we had no troubles conceiving, obviously my daughter and inexplicably, I couldn't get pregnant again. Uh, we went through lots of doctor appointments. We did, um, we did, we did medicines plus, um, intrauterine inseminations, IUIs, they call them. Do I need, should I explain more? I was just going to say, can you, for someone who might not be familiar, what is, um, what's an IUI? Right. So I, I I'm, I'm going to actually go back slightly further and just say when, um, as a medical professional and also in the line of work that I do currently. So the recommendations are that if you are under the age of 35, you, and, and you assume, and you know, based on your, both of your medical history, that everything is okay. It is recommended that um, couples try for a year to see whether they can get pregnant because it, because it is very, very common that it can take up until that point, really 12 months, even when everything is working absolutely perfectly fine for someone to get pregnant. Um, because this is actually a, an unknown statistic, um, every single month, if everything is working perfectly, if both the man and the woman, if everything is fine, the percentage that you will get pregnant on a single month is only 20%, 20%, that's it. And that doesn't mean that the next month, if you don't get pregnant that first month, the next month it's 40%, and then the next month it's 60%. It doesn't work like that. Every month, you only have the possibility of getting pregnant 20% of the time. So those people out there that say like, he only has to look at me and then I get pregnant, like, that's pretty incredible because the, the statistics are it only happens 20%. Right. Of the so, like, time, those people are just say, statistically lucky, I guess. I was exactly. fascinated. I learned this when I had Dr. Uh, Bachev Mazal Lerner on the, on the show, um, yep. Lerner Mazal, I should say. And she, and she says this, and I was like, hold on a second. That's wild that it is, you know, it's wild. And you don't think of it as being that low. Um, but it, but it really is. So, so you were saying the recommendation is that, it, you know, assuming everything is fine, you try for a year. 
Right, which is what we did. Um, and then we went to a fertility doctor, a reproductive endocrinologist, which is what they're called, which is what Dr. Bacheva Lerner Maslow is, who's also a dear friend of mine. And we they ran a bunch of tests, both tests on myself, tests on my husband, um, and everything was fine. There was nothing wrong with either one of us. Um, and so basically at that point, the recommendations are that they usually give the woman some kind of medicine, whether it's um, pills or whether it's injectables, they give the woman some kind of medicine to increase the number of eggs that she would drop on one cycle. Because on a typical basis, a woman only like there are a lot of eggs that at start to mature in 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 the ovaries but there's only one that gets released in order to be able to to meet with the sperm so in order to sort of increase the odds there are medicines that can be taken on, under the supervision of a doctor um, that you can increase the number of eggs that get dropped because obviously if you increase the number of eggs, then you could potentially increase your possibilities of having a child. So that's one aspect. And then the second aspect from the sperm side is what they do is they take a sample of the sperm and they spin it down to get rid of all the junk. Like I'm using obviously like very, like very official medical, medical terms. terms here. Yes. <laughs> very, very official terms. They get rid of all the junk and they just keep the good stuff. And they take that good stuff. And while what's happening to the woman is, you know, the woman is monitored from the time that she gets her period until the time that she gets, until the time that she ovulates, when they determine that she's at the point where she's ready to ovulate, there is a, um, there's an appointment that's scheduled. And what they do is they take that sperm and it's basically, they call it kind of like in layman terms, the turkey baster method, where they take that sperm and they quote, squirt it up and making sure that it gets right into your uterus so that it has the best chance of meeting that egg or eggs that have been released. Um, and so when I say that we did Clomid, which is a medication that I took my mouth and an IUI, this intrauterine insemination, that is what happened. And on our first try, Thank God we got pregnant. Um, however, on the, you know, the first, my first miscarriage, and we'll talk about the others, my first miscarriage happened um, at the eight-week mark of that pregnancy. You know, this was a time we were all just up. We, you know, we were super excited about finally getting pregnant after all of these years of angst and pain. Um, and there was no heartbeat at the eight week mark, which is when you would typically somewhere between six, seven and eight weeks, depending on, um, depending on, you know, the way the baby implants, you would typically see a heartbeat. I did not. How um, would you, like, how did you know that you were pregnant before then? So I knew I was pregnant because when you're being seen by a reproductive endocrinologist, there at the time when you would be pregnant, meaning two weeks after ovulation, they do a blood test to see whether you've your body has started oh, okay. to make the the hormone. This there's a specific hormone um, that your body emits, exudes, makes, however you want to say, um, when you're pregnant. It's called um, beta HCG. Um, it's it's beta human chorionic oh, now you're making me pull back into the medical recesses of my brain, which are not there. It's called HCG. I'm not remembering the right <laughs> name right now. It's fine. <laughs> and, um, and what you want to do is you want to see that number being more than zero because zero means you're not pregnant. And then you want to see that number rising appropriately over the course of the first few weeks 
So basically you knew that you were pregnant so early because you were being so closely monitored. Exactly. Look, the lay person, you know, anyone can walk into a drugstore and take one of these pee on a stick tests and you can see whether you were pregnant. I, I didn't do that because I had a doctor monitoring me, but that's how, that's how I figured it out. Um, and yeah, look, I mean, it was abs- the miscarriage was absolutely devastating. I ended up having a procedure to take the baby out. I ended up with a post-procedure um, infection, landed me back in the hospital for two days afterwards. We thought that I was going to have to have another procedure. There were many, many, many things that happened afterwards. But I, I think, you know, the main piece of that was that I I lost the baby that I was desperately, desperately wanting and that we had finally, we thought, gotten to that point and gotten over that hump. Um, I, I'm going to speed up just for the, for the sake of, of brevity here and say that, um, we ended up switching doctors because I was traumatized by that whole experience. Um, we went through another round of this time, instead of um, pills by mouth, we did injectables, um, with that IUI, with that turkey baster. Um, I did not get pregnant. I was even more devastated because I thought like, you know, well, how come it worked last time? Like, why didn't it work this time? Like we're leveling Um, up here. This should be easier. uh, uh, Correct. It should be easier. What is going on here? Um, We ended up that next cycle having a natural cycle, what they call it, meaning no medications, but I still wanted to um, sort of give my best chances to it. So we did end up um, doing an IUI, a turkey baster also. And I had my son nine months later. Um, so whether it, you know, for whatever the reason why I had to go through any of that, nobody really knows. But what I can tell you is like the body is a very mysterious and 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 really um, something that even we as doctors, we do not understand because just as fast as sort of that period of infertility came in my life, that period of infertility left because after I had my son, um, I nursed him for a year, just like I nursed my older daughter. And then I got pregnant that first cycle and had my daughter nine months later. So it was just like this very strange period in my life, but it, it sort of came and then it went. Um, and, you know, look, the rest of my story is that we, being in the modern Orthodox community, we in my head, in my husband's head, we never thought that we were done with three. We thought that there were going to be four, five, six. Like that's where we thought our family size was going to be and infertility, not my problem anymore. So I finished nursing my daughter. I get pregnant again. Everything is good. Um, And I should say that, you know, at the eight week mark at all of these pregnancies, I, I always get anxious because I had had that experience where there was no heartbeat at the eight week mark. And so I, I knew what that was like. And I always like, I, I, those appointments, I always used to go in with trepidation, but thank God that was never the case with any of the rest of the pregnancies that I had. And so, you know, we get past that eight week mark and I'm la di da and here I am and we're planning for a pregnancy and my three kids are so excited and da, 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 da. Um, and I go in for the 16 week appointment and there's no heartbeat again. Um, and nobody knows why. It, it just, you know, I, I had a perfectly formed baby 
you know, there are, there are a number of tests for those of you in the audience that um, have been pregnant, for those of you in the audience who have not been pregnant. There are a number of tests that get done at the OBGYNs um, at the 12-week mark, both blood tests and ultrasounds. And all of those tests had come back perfect. So as far as I was concerned and my doctors were concerned, I was carrying a healthy baby. They couldn't figure out the reason why my baby just inexplicably died. Um, we, you know, I had the procedure to take the baby out. They did all the testing afterwards and my baby was perfect. And we had no answers and I was a mess. And the doctors were just like, it's a fluke. It happens. Try again. You have three kids. You have no trouble getting pregnant anymore. And like, just try again and blah, blah, blah. Um, we did eventually. I mean, look, you know, there, I could talk to you about the days and the weeks and the months of like not getting out of bed and like, why is this happening to me? And I have three kids and why is God punished? Like we could talk about all those things, but what, 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 uh, what I really need to talk more about is the fact that that exact situation where I would make it past the eight week mark and then get to either 16 or 17 weeks and then walk in for an appointment and have no heartbeat. So that exact situation happened four times in a <sighs> row over the course of about two and a half years. Jeez. Um, right, right. And, and, and that is, that's really the only response for that. I mean, geez, it, it, it is, um, you know, I, I and, and, and here's what I'll say, right? I don't have answers. We, we don't, as, as medical professionals, we don't have answers. They were all healthy babies. I had two boys and two girls. I had every test known to man, and there was nothing that came back as being an indication as to why this might be happening. My husband was tested for every possible thing, nothing there as well. Um, this was, you know, look, let me, let, let me call it what it is. Um, the end of my story is that after all of that, I was basically broken. Um, I was pretty much not a functioning human being. Um, I would kind of pull myself together when my children were awake, when they were not in school. Um, in order to try to be the best mother I could, but I was a mess. I was the mess. And, and, you know, it, it is very hard. And this is this, a lot of this is the work that I do now. When you have an idea about the way your life is going to look, what your future is going to hold for you, because you see everyone else around you seemingly following that path. And you think like, yeah, it's happened for them. It's happened for them. It's going to happen for me, right? I'm going to get married at a certain age. I'm going to get, have children at a certain age. I'm going to then move out of, a, you know, my first apartment and I'm going to get a house at a certain age. And I'm going to be at this point in my career at a certain age. Like we all have expectations, whether they're internally, it's in some kind of internal pressure that we feel for ourselves, or whether it's this communal pressure because we see everybody else doing it, right? You know, those expectations exist. And so when that doesn't happen, it's devastating. 
it's devastating. And, and then the question becomes, how do you move on and move through that, knowing that life is not handing you the things that you have wanted on a silver platter? What do you do? And I think for each person, that is very different. Um, for me, it looked like at the time, just putting it away. Like I had to put away this idea that I was going to be the mother of four, five, six children. I had to just like stop, like I had to work myself out of the depression, out of the, out of the like, the, the space that my head was in, like that, that cloud, like I did have things in my life that were good, that were incredibly good. And I had to just put it away and say, I'm done. We are not going after this anymore. We are not, my mental health is just like, you know, at the bottom of the deepest, darkest pit I have ever even conceived could possibly exist. And I need to pull myself together in order to take care of the family that I do have instead of staying down there and dreaming about the family that I hope to have. Um, and, and I'm saying it now kind of glibly, but it was a tremendous amount of work and it was a tremendous amount of um, time to get to that point. What did that work look like? <sighs> um, it looked like a lot of leaning into where I was, but also, and, and not sort of pushing it aside and not just like, like saying, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Like it really, it was really leaning in to this is horrible. This is terrible. My life is awful. I'm going to stay in bed for the rest of my life. I don't know how I could ever possibly smile again. How could I possibly go to a bris or any kind of simcha where how could I walk down the street and see all of these people who were pregnant the same time I was and, and see their kids and see my empty stomach? How could I, how could I go to shul? How could I look at my sister who has a, like, how could I do any of these things? So it just looked like a lot of work and a lot of leaning into, I'm sad, this is terrible. I need to like just acknowledge it and lean into it. And then slowly, 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 slowly dipping my toe back into safe spaces where I felt that I could be myself and still sort of come out into public again. And, you know, it, it, it took time. I, I, that, that's really all I can say. Um, it took time. I, I, I don't recommend this, but I'll just sort of say it as it is. Um, I did not um, go to therapy at the time. I did not join any support groups. I was not on medication. Um, I did go on medication later, which I'll tell you about in a second. But um, in that time period, I I felt that there was there was nothing that anybody could say to me to make it better. I wanted to be pregnant. I had these babies. My babies died. Nobody could give me back my babies, and so. 
okay, so you're going to give me techniques about how I should shower every day. Okay. When I'm ready, I'll shower every day. You're going to tell me that like, eventually I should start being with people and I shouldn't like, you know, seclude myself in my room. Yes, I will do that when I'm ready. I don't need a therapist to tell me that. Again, like I don't recommend this. This is just what I needed at the time. I, and it, and look, I, I mean, I'm here now, right? So it, it worked, but I, I, I leaned into all of the deep, dark yuck and I pulled myself out slowly slowly, slowly. And there was also, I've spoken about this um, in other places, and this is also on our website. Um, there was one person who had also been through three second trimester losses. And she, I credit her with the reason why I stayed sane. Because we, we held each other together. We did it together. And, and so she was my support. And she was my therapy. And, and she was like, she was also ahead of me. She, you know, she had these three and then she got pregnant and then she had a baby. And she was like, Amy, I'm telling you, she's like, it doesn't go away, but I'm showing you that there can be something. I'm like, but how do you know? What if I never have another kid? What if she's like, and then you will be okay too. Mm -hmm. So I, I, we used each other. She's still a very, very, very dear friend of mine. Um, we used each other and she kept me sane. Um, so that look, must have been your first I, experience with seeing that someone to talk to can be incredibly valuable. Yes. Yes. And um, look, you know, the, the, you know, fast forward, the end of the story is that after a number of years, I, I don't remember anymore how long it was, two, three, four, I, I don't remember. Um, at some point, my husband and I kind of turned to each other and, and I said to him, I, I kind of think I need to do this one more time. Like there were, you know, as a medical person, I'm, I need to see data. I need to see research. Like when we, we traveled around the country speaking to all these different doctors during those years, trying to get answers, which there were none, but we, we, you know, we kept trying to get these answers. And there were people that we had met with over the years who had these theories. They were like, Oh, you know, if you stand on your head every second Sunday and you, you know, eat flus, like, you know, like all those things. Right. And I was like, show me the data. And they were like, no, we don't have any data, but give us $5,000. I'm like, no, I'm like, no. Right. So mm -hmm. I said to my husband, like, because there are people out there who prey on, on people who are vulnerable, like myself, who are desperate for a child. Um, so I said to my husband, I said, you know, we need to do this one more time. And anything that we can afford that is not dangerous and that seems kind of reasonable, like that I can get my head around it, I think we need to do because I need to be able to stand like, you know, at the Kiseha Kavod, I need to stand when like after I go, after 120 years, when I die, when I'm standing in front of God, I need to be able to say to him, I did everything in my power. I know that it's ultimately, it was your decision to give me this, but I did all the things. So what did I miss? Like, I just, mm. I need to be able to say to him. And yes, we did 
did all of the other things, the religious pieces, the ruchnias, as we call it, like we did all of the praying and all of the, go, you know, praying at different, different people's like it, it's, it's, it's a, um, it's a custom to pray at different holy people's graves, because they can then intercede to God to you because they, they were, they're holier than we are. And you they piled on the segulas. Correct. Pile them on. Pile like so. I did all of those things, and then did all of the doctors, right? And we um we got to that ultrasound where there hopefully would be heart. I got pregnant. Okay, sorry, I missed that part. I got pregnant. Important again, detail, Amy. Okay? Yeah, important, <laughs> sorry, sorry, forgot the pregnant part. I got pregnant because again, getting pregnant not my problem anymore. Um, we get to that ultrasound, that eight week ultrasound, and there are two heartbeats Ooh, and, plot twist. and the doctor was like, Oh my God. And I turned to my husband and I'm like, great. There will now be two babies that die at 16 weeks instead uh, of one. Right. Because look that that's what well, I no, You had every reason to think that I probably would have thought exactly the same thing. Right. So, um, those, those two heartbeats are now eight mm. and, um, it is like, do, do I know why that pregnancy worked and why all of the others did not? I have no idea. Um, but I, every single day, I am grateful. I am blessed. And it, it gives me the strength to do this work because I know what it's like to be all the way deep down in that hole. I can go back there in five seconds. I can access all of those emotions, but it's also not my life anymore. My life, thank God, is filled with loveliness and happiness and children. And so I can, I can do the work and I can try to be as effective and, and supporting as I can with this work, but I can also separate myself and say, that is work. And now I'm home and dinner needs to get on the table and you need homework and we don't have any Shabbos dresses for you this season. Right. So it's, it's, I am very blessed to be in this position. Yeah. It's because you're past it that you are able to be of service in it. Like I, I can imagine that it is really hard to support someone going through something that you are also going through. It's like, I don't have space for your pain right now. I am dealing yes. with my own. Yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. So when people ask, and they often do, so what if you never had those twins? What if you were just, you know, had three kids? I say that would have been an incredible gift. And I would be, would be, and I am lucky to be the parents of my three children. But I would not have been able to do this work. Yeah, I, I totally hear that. At what point did you decide that this was something that you wanted to do? And can you tell everyone what I was supposed to have a baby is for someone who might not be familiar? Sure. So I was supposed to have a baby is a, we, we is a space. It's a nonprofit, but really I, I call it a grand space. It's, it's a social media space where we hold people, anyone in the Jewish community, who is struggling to have a child. Um, and what that looks like could be anything. It could be any kind of medical diagnosis that you're dealing with. It could be any sort of mental illness or any sort of physical challenge, emotional challenge. I'm now repeating myself. Um, it could be um, 
financial burden. It could, it could be a thousand different things. You, you could have decided that you don't want to have children at all, but you still feel that angst of, because all everybody else is, is having that because that's the norm in your community. We, we are a space, we use social media in order to be able to support people emotionally as they're walking down this path of trying to build their family and coming to grips with exactly what I was speaking about earlier, this idea that things have not gone according to plan. And so now what? Um, we use Instagram, we use TikTok, um, but we use social media specifically for this because it is a space where you can feel community, but still be anonymous. It is, mm. it is that great is that it is like for all of the evils that everybody talks about, it's so horrible and it's so this and it's so that, and it is, and it is. But as with all mundane, there is the ability to elevate the mundane and elevate the things that other people just I see never thought as, about the anonymity piece that way. Right. So that's, that's so interesting. You're right. This doesn't work on other platforms. Correct. So that is the reason why we specifically chose social media, why we, I mean, we, we chose Instagram and TikTok for other specific demographic reasons, but social media, because you can make an anonymous account, you know, hi, I'm, you know, my handle is ABC123 and you can scroll and you can post and you can make reels and you can do all the things you can scroll anonymously, even without making a handle, or you could use your real name. It is your choice to interact with social media at the level to which you are comfortable. And so that gives in, in the Jewish community and specifically in the religious Jewish community, where people are so reluctant to talk about any fertility issues at all. People don't even like to talk about the fact that they're pregnant, let alone talk about that they're not getting pregnant or they can't get pregnant or if they're having any difficulty. This is the perfect way to preserve people's privacy, their dignity, but to still be able to create community. And so that is what I was supposed to have a baby is. That is awesome. So yeah, at what point did you feel ready enough yes. to, to be that person for other people? Right. So um, after my ha I had my twins, I wanted to spend, look, I, you know, I'd waited so long to have another baby. So I, oh, actually, you know what, Rifki, I need to go back because a piece of the story that I didn't share with people yet is that I, you know, I'm a pediatrician by training. I was working as a pediatrician, but in the midst of those sucked. two, right. Okay. So that, that's exactly it. Right. After my first second trimester loss, it, I, I took time off of work for exactly that reason, because it sucked. Um, and it was really, I like, I couldn't even begin to try to take care of other people's babies while having three kids at home. But like the fact that I was going to have to take care of three people, like not three people, the fact that I was going to have to take care of people's babies was like, just totally incomprehensible to me. And I was like, no. So I had to work myself not only out of the emotional like depths of grief, but also work myself up to being able to go back to work. So that took time. Then after the second loss, it took even more time, but I still was able to go back to work. And I remember like crying in the hallways and ugh, it, like there was one nurse at work who knew everything. And she was like, 
my lifeline, but I, it was hard, but I did it. After that third loss, I quit my job. It was just, it was enough. I, I, I could, I just could not, I could not. And so I did not. Um, and then after the twins were born, you know, I wasn't working anymore. And so I was blessed. I was able to spend two years with them just, you know, in the horribleness of all of the twin things of the not sleeping and the feeding schedules and the crazy <laughs> of that. Like, yes, I'm a person that went through all of those years of infertility and pregnancy loss. And I will still tell you that having twins was horrible until they started to sleep through the night, but that's another podcast. Um, and um, I love you yes. very much, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love no, you very I much that, too. I think that that's such a, that's such an important thing to note because like so many infertility stories end with, and then I had the baby and it was all sunshine and roses. I love that we can acknowledge that babies, oh no. <laughs> especially two babies are hard and good things can also be hard. I was, um, I was like, I literally don't understand this. I'm a pediatrician. I've nursed three babies already. My son, one of my twins was a horrific nurser, horrific. And, and my daughter was like the slowest nurser on the planet. Like my other twin, I, I'm sorry, I didn't say that they were boy girl twins. Um, the slowest nurser on the planet. And I'm like, guys, I know how to do this. Why are you not doing like, what is going Get on? Get your here? act together, like, people. Seriously, like what on earth, like, I know how to do this. Like, why are you making me feel like I'm incompetent? And then they wouldn't sleep and then he wouldn't latch and he, she wouldn't fit. It was a nightmare. Okay. Another podcast. We're not talking about that. <laughs> Bottom line is it was a nightmare and I was a mess. Okay. But they started sleeping and eventually I actually stopped nursing them. I pumped for another five months and Vizehu, I finished because I was an emotional wreck pumping and trying to deal with this and feeling the inadequate, like I'm not a good mother. And I waited all these years for them. And like, what is going on here? And I'm not giving them the full year of breast milk. Like I gave to my other kids and blah. I'm like, and I was like, no, finally, like my emotional health is just not worth this anymore. They're finally sleeping. I need to move on. And I did. And then like everything changed and then everything was great. But I digress. The point is that, okay, wait, now where was I? <laughs> Being able to support other people. Yes. Okay. So I, I spent two years taking care of them. And um, at that point, my shul, my local shul was... Um, they were doing a program on infertility and pregnancy loss, and they wanted to have they, they any we we do these kinds of things in my local shul where we have we bring out different topics um, on a Shabbos afternoon, and we have different women in the community speak about their experiences. Um, we've done postpartum depression, eating disorders, death of a spouse, special needs children. We've done all kinds of topics. So this was the time they were doing this, and I was asked to speak about my experience with pregnancy loss. Um, being that most of my losses were in the second trimester, they were public. And so, you know, for many people, like that first miscarriage I had was not public at the time. But those other losses were public because people knew I was pregnant and then they knew I wasn't pregnant. So it wasn't as if I was, you know, coming out with this big secret. 
it was already out there in my community. And I really felt like I had this responsibility to share my experiences at large because people needed to feel less alone, that I was so alone. It was such a, it was such a horrible experience with the exception of, you know, my one friend, but I felt this, this deep sense of responsibility. Um, And so I spoke that Shabbos afternoon to about 150 people. You know, there was also a person who was there um, speaking about infertility. From that point on, things started moving. Um, I got introduced to Riva Judas, who is the director of Nahama Comfort, which is an organization based in New Jersey that deals with um, pregnancy and infant loss. And I ended up working for her, uh, for them, for three years. I did all kinds of things. I ran support groups. I did individual counseling. I ran their social media. I spoke. I did, did fundraisers. I did all kinds of things for them. But what I saw, and the reason why I left and started, I was supposed to have a baby, is because things started changing in the Jewish community in terms of our general appetite for having these kinds of conversations. Before, you know, about five years ago, infertility and pregnancy loss was not something that one could readily discuss at a Shabbos table. And I know that there are still many segments in the Jewish community where it still is not happening. But I'm speaking about the other parts where it is happening, because I believe that eventually it will get to those to those recesses as well. These, I, I saw the conversations happening. I saw the public awareness. I saw also the emergence of discussions happening on social media at large, where other people who are not Jewish were taking to social media, Instagram specifically. I'm not exactly sure why it was Instagram, but it was Instagram specifically, where people like just would publicly with their own names, like with their own faces, get up and say, today, it's day one, and I'm ready to go to my reproductive endocrinologist's office. And here, I'm sitting in the chair, and I'm getting an ultrasound. And look, I'm injecting myself. And look, I just had a miss. Like, it was wild. It was wild. And while I knew that it probably was light years away for that happening in the Jewish community, I knew that we could start making inroads here and that social media was the perfect way to do that. That people, as I said before, you could be anonymous and we, I, could could start this other organization that would work hand in hand with all of the other incredible Jewish fertility organizations that are out there. Um, I could work hand in hand with all of them and provide a space on social media for people to get support. Because there is already people doing financial support and halachic support and you know, guidance in terms of um, getting people specific medical supervision and getting them to doctors. There are already organizations out there that are doing all of these pieces, but none of them were on social media. And that was the whole. And so that's the whole I was supposed to have a baby fills. We hold people. You're going here, there, and everywhere to get all the all of that. But when you're crying in your bed at three o'clock in the morning because 
your cycle failed because you don't know anyone else like you because someone said this horrible comment to you because of a thousand other reasons, you can come on, I was supposed to have a baby and you can immediately feel like you're not alone. And that is the power of what we have done. The accessibility that's so revolutionary. As you're talking, and it's like clicking in my brain why this is such a big deal. Because like I, I've I've heard of I was supposed to have a baby. I've you know if you're on Instagram and you're Jewish, you've heard of I was supposed to have a baby. Um, and 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 you're right. Like as you're talking, I'm like wait, but there's Boneolam and there's a time and like there's Pua like and Nahama yes. and all that. Like you know, yes. we've heard of all these things. But you're right. It's the accessibility of it, and it's the fact that you don't need to make a phone call. Right. Like if you yep. want, if yep. you want support from Nahama Comfort, I'm assuming you got to reach out to them. They don't yep. know where to find you. And if yep. you want to get to, I was supposed to have a baby, you open your phone and it's right there. Yes. That's pretty cool. Yes. Yes. That's exactly it. That's actual. Yeah. Good job, Amy. Seeing a void. Like that's, <sighs> yeah, it's, and I can, and I, and I get why, why it, I, I get why it needs to be this way in a lot of ways. Um, I get like, I, I mean, listen, I'm a super private person and I think that privacy overall is a good thing. And yes, there is always like this balance between, it, you know, sharing to help other people and maintaining your own privacy. And the fact that you can be a part of a community with I was supposed to have a baby and not be involved in and, and not be public about it is super valuable. I want to touch on something that you mentioned quickly, which was this comments aspect of it. People make weird, weird ass comments about other people's children having schedules like this happens on the regular (laughs) did you hear my sigh (laughs) yeah exactly like this this happens on the regular and then which which like don't ask people if they're pregnant like don't ask people if they're pregnant don't ask people when they're going to be pregnant don't tell them you'd like for them to have a baby like nobody wants to hear that from you um can you say that louder and like maybe a hundred (laughs) thousand more times okay like i'm sorry our podcast is not that it's not this long right okay fine sorry i'll take that back (laughs) no it could be this long but like really it's just nobody wants to hear that from anybody but i'm curious about a little bit of a different angle of this and this is actually a conversation that you and i have had at length um Sometimes things happen unintentionally that cause other people harm. And this is not specific to people dealing with infertility, um, but we'll talk about it in this context because I have you here. So like uh, so, like recently, uh, within the last couple of months, I announced that over the winter, I became a mom. Um, and there was a lot of hullabaloo around that. And, you know, appropriately, it's fun. Um, but in... You know, I, I did a live that I eventually published to the podcast feed. You can see it. Um, you can get it wherever you're listening to this. The episode is called On Motherhood Special Solo Episode. Um, it's the episode after the one that I did with my mom. And in the when I, re- I recorded that live um, on Instagram, and in the comments of that live, somebody wrote, and I have no idea who this woman is, that um, that hearing my announcement was um, caused her a lot of pain. Um, we were talking specifically about the fact that I chose to hide my pregnancy um, and that this announcement really did come from out of the blue for a lot of people. Um, and she said that hearing the announcement caused her a lot of pain. And I didn't really know what to do with that information. Obviously, I apologized. You know, I'm sorry that this announcement on my part caused you pain. It was obviously not my intention. Um, but I- I'm curious what your reaction is to that. I'm curious, you know, how you feel about something like that. Because there is a certain part of me, and this is like the suck it up and deal with it part of my brain, that is like, yeah, sometimes things in life suck, but that doesn't mean that it sucks for everyone around you. And maybe you should just 
deal with that on your own time. Like, like what responsibility do you think someone in my situation has in that, in, in that whole context? Your responsibility, your only responsibility, I always say is to yourself. And I, you know, th this, this kind of comment, this is not the first time I've heard this kind of comment. I'll, I'll give you an example. Lizzie Savetsky, who is a well-known Jewish religious influencer on mm -hmm. Instagram. Lizzie Savetsky has a very public story about, and she speaks about it very publicly about her infertility story, her pregnancy losses. I think she had more than one. I don't remember exactly. She's had an ectopic. Um, and 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 she's spoken very publicly about it. She has two older girls. At the point that she started speaking more openly about her story, she had her two girls, but she did not have her son. Um, and there there was some discussion at some point on her on her handle about how 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 she was going through these difficult medical challenges she had like had some terrible allergic reaction at some point um and little did we know it but that those allergic reactions were to medicines that she was taking for the pregnancy with her son she didn't announce that pregnancy until a number of months later when she i don't know it was like you know 4 months or so later and Lizzie and I have talked offline a number of times, and she said something very similar to me. She said, I don't know how to handle it because I have all these people coming at me and telling me that I, I hid my pregnancy, and now, now that I am pregnant, and, and she, she was very public about her pregnancy and showing off her baby bump all the time and her, her, her like adorable, you know, pregnancy clothes and the things that she was buying and all of that, because that's her platform. And she said, I have all these people coming at me and, you know, telling me how, how I'm so insensitive to their plate. And I made myself the champion of infertility and pregnancy loss. And how, how, how could I be so rude? And how could I be so insensitive? And my response to her is the same as my response to you right now. And I said to her, you know, look, at the end of the day, your only responsibility is to yourself. You have no obligation to please anyone else. If you want to be private about something, then you should be private about something. That is your choice. No one else gets to do no one else gets to tell you what you should be doing, what you should be saying about your own private life. And in turn, for Lizzie, it, that extrapolated out in terms of her pregnancy. Like she made the decision that she was going to be private about the pregnancy initially, and then she was going to be really public about it because that's her platform. Her platform is that she's public about many, many, many things in her life. Obviously, it's not everything because this is social media. The facade, right, is that she's showing us everything because that's what social media does. It makes you think that we're seeing every possible thing about someone's life. But the reality is, is you're seeing these cultivated, carefully curated pictures, photos, videos of what she wants to show you. And you did exactly the same in terms of you shared and didn't share what you wanted to do. And so I think these people, 
who are coming, you know, this woman who came after you and the people who are coming after her and the people who I get comments from, I get these comments too, where people say to me, oh my God, did you see blah, blah, blah. I can't believe that they're blah, blah. I'm like, the reality is, is that part of my work is, is to sensitize the general community on how to be how to be kind and how to be sensitive. I'm using the word again, how to be supportive to people who are struggling. Because in general, this is not something that we learn in school. This is not something that our parents teach us. This is not something that our friends know how to do. This is something that needs to be taught. We need to know that you should exactly, as you just said, Rifki, we should never be asking people when they're getting pregnant, if they're getting pregnant, how many kids they're planning on having, what about their spacing, all, all, all of the things that we're shouting from the rooftops, right? We should never do that. But people do it, right? People do that. They have to be taught not to. So yes, there is a general level of sensitivity that I am sharing and that we are sharing with the community. And let's call it in the world at large. There is a lot of this like wokeness and I don't view the, the sensitivity that I and others are trying to do with the fertility community. This is not woke. This is just human kindness. So what does that look okay. like? How can we be more supportive to the people around us who are dealing with infertility? Right. So the way that we can be supportive is to take ourselves out of the situation and really think about the other person. This is not about what you want to know from them. This is about being a friend and being supportive to the other person. So it's, I'm here for you, no matter what, no matter what's going on. I just want you to know that I'm a friend. I'm here to listen. I'm here to be by, by, by your side. You don't have to share anything with me or you can just know that I'm always here without judgment. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to give you advice. I'm just going to be here. And I want to be, and I will be that shoulder for you to lean on and that ear for you to tell anything you want. That's all that people need. That is the main basis of what they need. And I, and I get lots of different kinds of like, but what if I know this? And what if I know that? And what if I have a doctor that could really help? And what if my friends, cousins, dog, sister went through this? And what if I all of those things are fine and good and whatever, but your friends and the people that are struggling, regardless of what they're struggling with, it doesn't have to be fertility. They just need you, your ears, and your arms for a hug. That's all they need. This boils down to my general life rule, which is don't be a butthead. Um, that's a really good rule. I really that's, like that. That's that's my life mantra. It's don't be a butthead. Uh, and, it's, that's and it's surprisingly excellent. easier than most people think. Just think, would a butthead do this? And then proceed accordingly. Um, yeah, I, I hear that. It's This is the kind of thing also where I think because, like, it's exciting when someone has a baby, you know? It's exciting when someone is pregnant. It's exciting, especially if it's someone who you care about when they are you know, it's just, it's exciting. It's fun. You know, baby clothes are adorable and tiny and wanting like someone who is like clued into that is someone who would be a part of like that celebration or that excitement in your life. Can I guess understandably get a little impatient or maybe a little too nosy or a little too involved. Um, and it's, and, and that's kind of, I think where people get a little bit lost. 
Right. And, and I'll also, let me just say one other point, which, which like comes into the sensitivity piece, which is, I think the reason why that person specifically called you out, look, when people in the fertility community, when they're going through something difficult, they, like I've educated them and many people have educated them to say like, your job is to like, only deal with the triggers in your life that you feel that you can manage, right? Like some people like can't manage like going into shul because there are too many people around. Some people can't be at lots of big Shabbos meals, lots of big holiday meals because there's going to be too many family that are asking questions and lots of kids running and blah, blah, blah. Like some people can't go to amusement parks. Like there are people who have specific triggers for them and they avoid them because they're worried about their mental health. And so many people also turn off social media in general, or they mute my account. They mute, I was supposed to have a baby, because we talk about really a lot of hot, heavy, and difficult things, and, it, and it's too hard for them. And I get it, and I advise them to do exactly that. So I think for you, your space your impact fashion, your space is a safe space for them. You don't discuss your personal life. You right. don't discuss anything about that. So they're coming on and thinking that they're getting dresses. And then when they came on and they were like, well, wait, you had a baby. I wasn't coming on here for this. This totally is triggering me. I think that's also where that came from. Honestly, that's an interesting point. I didn't think about that. Yeah. I could, I could totally see how someone could, would. Yeah. And honestly, that's a space that I'm really honored to hold. Like, I think that there is something so radical of being unapologetically selfish and having a space where you come on just to think about yourself and how you feel, which is a big part of the reason why I don't share anything about my personal life, aside from the fact that my personal life is really boring. Um, but like that, it's just not, or let me put it this way. I'm not interested in making it exciting for social media, but <laughs> I could probably, but nobody, nobody wants to see that. Um, but, but yeah, I can see how, I can see how that would be a space that I would fill. And then that would change, you know, having that change so suddenly, um, you know, how, how that changes that. That's also a big part of the reason why, you know, we could have had this conversation a long time ago, or we could have had it, you know, close to when I announced and I specifically kind of pushed it off, um, because it, it felt like it was getting a little bit too birth heavy and, uh, uh. I'm just not yeah. that particularly interested, you know, like that. And that also, yes. like, I, I just didn't want it to, to feel like a space where that's all that we talk about. Right. And look, I will say that, you know, and I was supposed to have a baby, you know, just getting into like these kinds of issues. Also, I, when I first started it almost three years ago, I thought that I was never going to have to show my face. I was never going to have to tell my story that I was just going to be able to create the supportive space for people, tell other people's stories, give education, sensitivity, awareness, and it was never going to be at all about me. And a few months in, I realized that in order to be able to create intimacy and to create this sense of trust with the audience and with the community, I needed them to know that it wasn't just this robot behind the behind the scenes that was that was you know pulling all the strings. I needed them to know that there was a person behind this that really deeply cared and that really deeply understood what they were going through. And so that was the point where I felt like 
I needed to come out, so to speak, and I needed to show my face and I needed to tell my story. But you'll notice, right? I also walk that very fine line and I was supposed to have a baby. You will, I, and, and, and there are a few places that we walk this line, but in my life personally, um, sorry, not in my life personally, um, on the page, you will never see pictures of my family. You will never see pictures of my husband. I don't even know if I've referred to him by his first name. Um, and that is done by design. I have a personal Instagram page and a personal Facebook page, but it's private and it's only for the people who are my friends. Um, I tell enough of my story so that people can understand that this is real and I get it and I am the face of this organization and I am the person who's doing all those crazy things on reels and I am the person who's interviewing all the people on the podcast, on our Insta Lives. I am that person but I am the organization there. I am not Amy Barron and my personal life. And that is a specific choice that I made because at the end of the day, as much as this is my brainchild, this is not about me. This is about the community. And this is about the space that I hold for them, not about the Amy Barron page. Right. Yeah, and I think that it's much richer because of that, because... I mean, listen, you have your story and you have what you went through, but you also, you know, when I was supposed to have a baby, you discuss lots of different aspects of all of this and that, and you, you know, you can't have every experience, you know, and if it's, I was going to say, and I haven't had half, half of the things I talk about, but we it, talk about it anyway. Exactly. Like it can't just be, it, it, it can't be the Amy Barron show. Like that's just not, that's just not possible. Right. Right. I, I hear you. Well, it is a fantastic space and it is, I think, a hugely beneficial page. And I'm really glad that it exists. So if somebody wants to learn more about I Was Supposed to Have a Baby or connect with you, Amy, or benefit from all that you offer, where can they go? Thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, we So we are on Instagram at I was supposed, there's a D in there, I was supposed to have a baby. We are on TikTok. We have a website, www.iwassupposedtohaveababy.org. Um, and those are all the spaces you can find us. We have all of our videos. Everything is up on our YouTube channel. All of our videos are have also, they're actually, sorry, I shouldn't say they are also, but they are all slowly being uploaded to our podcast as well. I think we're up to I don't know, episode number 30 some odd at this point in terms of our podcast. And we have, I think, 80 some odd videos that are slowly migrating that way. Um, but feel free to reach out at any point. The one thing that your audience should know is that I answer every single DM that comes through on our Instagram personally. It goes to no one else. That is a piece that I feel that is extremely important. The messages are answered timely um, and it is only me. So if people want to find me, yes, obviously I have an email address. You can get me through the website too, blah, blah, blah. But if you want to message me on Instagram, I am the one who answers them. And I just want do want to mention the name of the podcast is Talking Away the Taboo with Amy Barron, MD. And um, you can hear it wherever you're listening to this. There are some really great episodes. I have a, a special place in my heart for podcasts that group their episodes by type. Um, so like just scroll through and read the title and see if it's something that you're interested in and then just pick something. There are some really, really great conversations there. Um, the last thing that I want to ask you, Amy, is what does it mean to you to make an impact? 
look, I, um, I, 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 I was really alone. I, I was really, really alone during those years with the exception of my friends. And I don't want anyone ever to have to feel that way. And I know that this is like, you know, this is like the, like, ugh, you know, this is the line every, oh, we don't, you are never alone. If you're with us, you are never alone. Okay, fine. But as we were saying before, the reality of social media is that you are literally never alone. We all carry our phones with us all day long. And if you have a phone, you have, I was supposed to have a baby. And so it doesn't matter if you just got bad news at the doctor's office or you're standing online at Costco and need something to distract you. Or if it is, as I always say, three o'clock in the morning, crying in your bed, because there were so many three o'clock in the mornings that I saw myself, like I was supposed to have a baby is there for you. And nobody has to know that you're doing it. And I don't even know that you're doing it. It, it is just a space. And I am grateful to play to be playing this role to be creating a small space for people to feel to feel a warm embrace when they are feeling so alone and and so for me that is what having an impact means i love that thank you so much for coming on today amy i really appreciate it thank you thanks for listening if you'd like to learn more about dr amy barron her links are in the show notes on last week's episode, my guest was Aliza Horowitz. We spoke about her old-fashioned sensibilities and the responsibility of a platform. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 17 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Riff Gitzquitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together. And one more thing, you know that for the last couple of weeks and for the next couple of weeks, I have teamed up with a bunch of other female podcasters to introduce you to some shows that you might also like. Um, these are some great shows. And this week's is The Weekly Squeeze with Hanala. Enjoy. Hey everyone, this is Hanala from The Weekly Squeeze. When I am not making music and busy being a super mom to my Israeli kids, I am diving deep into Jewish pop culture. If it's happening in the Jewish world, you're going to hear about it here first. From Israel to Brooklyn and everywhere in between, I will keep you updated on all the comings and goings of Jewish celebs while I share insider information about what's going on in the professional lives of all the movers and shakers that keep the Jewish entertainment world turning around. Heavy on humor, light on sarcasm, always interesting. The Weekly Squeeze is served fresh twice a week.